Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Before we begin, we want to let you know a bit more about our sponsor, Brilliant. Brilliant has digestible courses in topics from the basics of scientific thinking all the way up to stuff like quantum computing. In today's episode, we're discussing two instances where music and science overlap. If you want to delve into the mathematics of music, Brilliant has a fascinating explainer on how the mathematical relationships between sound frequencies underpin the foundations of music. The interactive sections are presented in a clean and accessible way, and you could go from knowing nothing about a topic to having a deep understanding. So put your spare time in lockdown to good use and hugely improve your critical thinking skills. Go to brilliant.org slash new scientist and sign up for free. And also the first 200 people that go to that link will get 20% off the annual premium subscription. Again, that address is brilliant.org slash new scientist. Hello, welcome to New Scientist Weekly. I'm Rowan Hooper. I'm our podcast editor. I'm Penny Sarchet, New Scientist News Editor. Joining us today is New Scientist staff writer Adam Fawn. Hello, Adam. Hello. On this week's show, we've got news about the past and future of Phobos, one of the moons of Mars. We investigate Lyme disease and the rise of chronic Lyme. And we've got new findings suggesting Parkinson's may primarily be a disease of the gut, not the brain. And on top of all of this, we're looking at two instances where science and music meet involving the likes of Greta Thunberg and Brian May. But first, coronavirus. We'll have an update on the global hunt for a vaccine in just a moment. But meanwhile, the UK. It's emerged as a world leader in the worst way possible. The country now has the highest number of absolute excess deaths in Europe, 62,000 more than usual through to May the 22nd. And the total number of confirmed COVID-19 deaths is second only to the US. Adam, you've been looking into how it all went wrong for the UK. Yes, I've been speaking to a lot of people about this. And uh, one of those was the former UK chief scientific advisor, Sir David King. And he said to me, well, of those figures that you've just read out, it's nothing short of a disgrace and a dereliction of duty. And, and, And the latter point there, he was talking about the role of the government. So David King has gone off and set up his own version of the government scientific advisory group, hasn't he? Yeah, that's right. The government's official uh, science advisors is the um, scientific advisory group for emergency, that's SAGE. And uh, David has set up a, an ISAGE, an independent SAGE, a group of people with expertise in infectious diseases and public health to, uh, you know, give some scrutiny and uh and uh he he basically says the key thing they're looking for is transparency from the official science advice and and he said to me the reason why there's such a difference between the uk and other countries bearing in mind all the caveats about making comparisons based on you know differences in data collection and demographics and so on is that simply in the uk we were slow we dithered at the start and we didn't take action at the key times in february and march that's what he says and I also spoke to one of the other people I spoke to was Helen Ward at Imperial College London. And she said to me, you know, we've been playing catch up from the start. And really that that slowness was the sort of thread that ran through everything. And she, you know, she cited testing, uh, tracing of contacts, how much people were told to isolate when, and also, you know, crucially 
social distancing and lockdown. The slowness on testing seems to have been really crucial, doesn't it? Yeah, the testing was a real issue at the start. We just, you know, at one point in early March, testing actually fell one day, you know, a really key time. And and, and Neil Ferguson at Imperial College, I was talking to him and he says, he said we simply didn't have a good enough insight into the problem in early March. And he, he thinks that might be one of the reasons we were relatively late with lockdown. You know, he said, for example, you know, surveillance in hospitals, in, in other words, you know, testing of patients and staff only really sort of jumped up in the second week of March. So, you know, that's that was quite late. And do we know why this happened, this sort of bottleneck with testing? So the bottleneck, there's, there's been a lot of back and forth on this and on exactly why the bottlenecks, you know, happened. And, and there was a Public Health England, they were in front of some one of the uh, committees of MPs recently, and um, they effectively seemed to say that it was down to the fact that um, initially... There was just a small number of centralised labs doing the tests um, rather than, you know, bringing in all the UK's many private labs and research institutes and universities. Um, and Conservative MP Greg Clark, he's the chair of the House of Commons Science and Technology Select Committee. He said the decision was, you know, the decision to rely on that centralised approach. He called that one of the most consequential made during this crisis, which is quite damning. And that was something to do with safety issues around which labs could conduct the tests? Yeah, so this is the thing, Public Health England, you know, did say, you know, they pointed out that, you know, the virus was treated as a dangerous pathogen. So that meant that tests could only initially be done by labs that are rated as category level three. That's the second highest in the UK's four by safety standards. And but that that's not a lot of labs so that is in, in on the on the face of it that seems like a fair explanation but that doesn't fully seem to stand up because there's anecdotal reports that offers of help from labs that are related at that level weren't taken up you know i spoke to someone at oxford who ran a small lab who you know sent there's four email chains that went unanswered and then you also had people like paul nurse at the crick institute you know saying that the government response when they did try to offer their help was a bit like past the parcel it's quite natural, isn't it? People are, are looking around now and, and wanting to blame someone. But is it fair to say that, you know, this was an unprecedented crisis, it was an unknown pathogen, and anyone would have made mistakes trying to deal with this? Yeah, it's interesting, Rowan. I mean, I, I, you know, the government in its sort of response to me, you know, pointed out all the ramping up they've done of PPE and, you know, NHS capacity and all, you know, the fact that testing is now at quite a high level. But Amongst the other people I spoke to was um, Gabriel Scanley at the University of Bristol, and he pointed out that any government would have made mistakes, um, and he thinks this government has made serious mistakes, in particular stopping the uh, contact tracing, he says, was the most significant one in early March. Um, but the, the key, he said, is that is to acknowledge them and to learn from them. Um, and, you know, that's, that's going to be really key now with, you know, the test and trace system in England. You know, we need the government to be open about what's going right and what's going wrong. Yeah. I know you've you've mentioned the caveat about making comparisons across different countries, but if you look at Sweden, um, it didn't lock down uh, or close schools or pubs and things, and it now has the eighth highest number of COVID-19 deaths per capita in the world. And the chief epidemiologist there, Anders Tegnell, he, he kind of has acknowledged his mistake, I think. He's basically admitted that the country's approach didn't work. Yeah, I mean, it's. I think his 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 comments have been really interesting because you know, he he basically said we should have been somewhere between where we were and the rest of the world. You know, basically admitting, you know, they have been to a similar mistake to the UK, which was 
around speed. Um, you know, the WHA was urging urging speed at the time. You know that this was kicking off, and I think it's, it's becoming clear that you know now Sweden sort of, as well as in the numbers, it's suffering some of the other consequences, such as not you know get being open to some of the uh, border arrangements that are being made and so on. So. Penny, what's the latest with vaccines? Are they going to get us out of this mess? Well, um, not soon, sadly. So uh, you may have heard claims that a vaccine will be ready by September, but that really does seem vanishingly unlikely. However, great progress is being made. So there are currently 10 experimental coronavirus vaccines being tested in people already and 114 other different vaccines in development at the last count. And that kind of push is completely unprecedented. So it really is amazing to see scientists mobilising worldwide to do this. I guess the big problem, uh, the massive problem, is that we don't know yet if it's even possible to vaccinate against COVID-19, right? Yeah, so that's still the big question. There have been some positive hints from studies, but there is still this concern that it won't be possible to use vaccines to induce long-lasting immunity against the coronavirus, just as people who have been infected once aren't necessarily immune to catching it again. We just don't know yet. Um, However, it is thought that a second infection would probably be milder. And so even a vaccine that ensured you only got a mild form of COVID-19, that would still be very useful. And one of the problems with testing a vaccine, which is going to add to the delay in getting one, is that you have to expose people to the virus or or allow them to become infected to test if the vaccine works. Yes, and so there is this issue in, a, thankfully, in, in many countries now, infection numbers are falling. Um, and that could then mean it, it then will be a long time before everyone in a trial is exposed to the coronavirus and teams get the results on, on whether a vaccine is effective or not in those circumstances. Can we uh, intentionally expose people, volunteers, to the virus? So that has been suggested as as one way to speed all of this up. Um, There are important ethical qualms about this because we don't have good treatments for COVID-19 yet. So trial participants that were deliberately exposed to the virus could then go on to die, uh, which is obviously a very problematic issue. One suggestion is that we could try doing this only with young people with no conditions that put them at an elevated risk and whose jobs mean that they would likely be exposed to the virus anyway. But that's still not ideal, even if countries ever decided to approve that as as an ethically okay thing to do. It still wouldn't tell you if the vaccine works for older people or people with uh, health conditions. And these are the people who actually need a vaccine the most. Right. But anyway, no vaccine by September. Really don't think so. Even once we get through uh, the research uh, phase and even if um, some of these vaccines turn out to be effective and and the idea is we do want more than one that will be effective, there's then all of the manufacturing and the scaling up and, and those are huge steps too. So no, nothing by September. Now it's time for a short musical interlude. This is a new irregular segment that allows us to shoehorn in some interesting overlaps between the worlds of science and music. Rowan. Yeah, this week we've got two items to mention. Uh, First, Adam, your mate Greta. She's on the new 1975 album. Did you hear that yet? Yeah, my old pal Greta. She's uh, yeah. I did. I did have a listen to that. So it's rather lovely and trippy, isn't it? It's the sort of thing you could drift off to sleep to. Although you might have yeah. some weird, you might have some weird dreams. I quite, I quite like the line about Homo sapiens hasn't failed yet. Um, yeah, she says not yet. Yeah, uh, yeah. So this is uh, the new 1975 album called Notes on a Conditional Form. On each of their albums, the first track on the album is normally has the same lyrics. 
But for this new album, they've got a spoken word piece by Greta Thunberg. um, And it's an adaptation of her famous Our House is on Fire speech. Let's play a clip of it. Yes, we are failing, but there is still time to turn everything around. We can still fix this. We still have everything in our own hands. She says that solving the climate crisis is the greatest and most complex challenge that Homo sapiens has ever faced. Uh, But even a small child can understand what we need to do, and that's cut emissions. Uh, And then there is a bit of rock and roll stuff in here, actually. She goes on to say that we need a system change and an individual change and calls for civil disobedience and rebellion. And money for this track, by the way, went to Extinction Rebellion. And you mentioned two items. What's the second one you've got for us? Yeah, this this is from the guitarist of Queen, the band Queen, uh, Brian May. He joined Queen in 1969, and that was when he was halfway through a PhD in astrophysics at Imperial College London. He did eventually complete his PhD 40 years later, uh, and this week he's started publishing. He's published a paper in Nature Communications. Hooray! Um, what's it about? It's about, well, the paper is called Collisional Formation of Top-Shaped Asteroids and Implications for the Origins of Ryugyu and Bennu. Right, so these are two (laughs) asteroids near Earth that have been visited by missions from Japan and the US. Yes, Uh, and the paper is about how the asteroids formed, and that will inform our understanding of the water they contain. And we care about this because we want to know everything about how our solar system formed, how the things in our solar system formed. But also one day we might want to mine those asteroids for water and other resources. And I'll tweet some of the asteroid simulation movies that Brian has put out. And I'll tweet that on our at New Scientist pod Twitter feed. Rowan, this is the bit where I'm going to be really facetious and ask if there was any badgers involved because the last time I talked to Brian was about badger culling. (laughs) Yeah, there aren't any badgers on these asteroids that anyone is aware of. (laughs) Well, we are doing a sample return mission, so we'll we'll find out if there are any badger spore. No, we should ask Brian if he can combine his two loves in his next publication, Badgers and, and Astrophysics. Time out. We wanted to remind you about the bargain offer available to you as a listener of our podcast. You can get 20% off a subscription to New Scientist using the code POD20. Go to newscientist.com to subscribe and enter the discount code POD20 at checkout for full access to the wealth of content available to subscribers. And if you like our show, please do vote for New Scientist Weekly in the British Podcast Awards Listener's Choice category. Go to britishpodcastawards.com slash vote to support your favourite science podcast. Next up, a new study is adding to evidence that Parkinson's disease is a disease primarily of the gut, even though its worst symptoms are in the brain. Yeah, this is a new paper based on work in baboons. Uh, It's important to say that right away. This is in baboons, not in humans. Scientifically, that is more informative than rats or mice, though, at least, I guess. Yeah, most of the work is done on mice. Most of the work of this kind of work uses mouse models of disease. And for a while, there's been a lot of evidence building up that Parkinson's starts in the stomach or colon and from there goes to the brain. So with Parkinson's, we know that one of the hallmarks of the disease is the buildup of deposits of a misshapen protein in the brain. In this way, it's a bit like Alzheimer's. But in the case of Parkinson's, the protein in question is called synuclein. This protein is in healthy nerve cells too, but it warps in shape and clumps together in Parkinson's disease. And for a while now, there have been some really intriguing findings of these clumps in the nerves of the guts of people with the disease, as well as in their brains. 
That's right, which tallies with some other symptoms of Parkinson's, such as the fact that people with the disease often get constipation well before they have the typical symptoms of tremors and stiffness and difficulty moving. So what's the new finding now? The new thing, this is the thing found in baboons, is that synuclein from people who died of Parkinson's has been implanted into the brains of some baboons and into the guts of others. Two years later, they went back and looked and found the synuclein in the brains of both groups of baboons. All of the animals also showed signs of brain damage and had lost around 40% of the dopamine-producing cells in a region of the brain that's important for movement, but they hadn't yet developed any problems with movement. Why might that be? Uh, We think it's because, or the scientists think it's because, well, in people, problems with movement don't appear until we lose about half of those dopamine-producing brain cells, and these baboons had only lost 40% so far. So does this latest finding point us in the direction of new treatments? It might do. It points towards the role of the gut microbiome. This is the massive community of bacteria living in our guts, and they're known to have effects on many aspects of our health, both mental and physical. Often when we report on the gut-brain link in Parkinson's, we speculate that there might be a treatment with antibiotics that could change the gut bacteria, but no bacterium or virus has been pinpointed as a cause. There is some suggestive evidence. People with Parkinson's have different gut bacteria to healthy people. So there's suspicion on this. But this is something I've got a bit of a personal stake in as I've got a close family member with Parkinson's. Yes, but we don't really have um, particularly good treatments for the disease yet, sadly, do we? But it does look like if the gut does turn out to have this pivotal role, that could be a really good target for treatment. I think, I think the thing I find fascinating hearing about this and reading about this is just it's yet more evidence of the extraordinary role of the gut in our lives, really. I think, you know, I was at a microbiology conference in San Francisco last year, and I was amazed at how much research there was there on the role it has potentially in other parts of the body. I mean, just one, you know, amongst many that I wrote up was about the link between, you know, the fact that the microbes in our guts might affect our brain development in childhood. So it's quite far reaching. Yeah, we're just getting our heads around this. We're walking around with something like a trillion bacterial cells in our bodies, and they've been linked to our moods, our mental health, our physical health. Uh, there are about a thousand different species of bacteria living in our guts in all these in these vast populations. They're all competing, uh, communicating with each other, and secreting products into our bloodstream to try and change the the host, our behaviour. Um, they can probably change our memories. Uh, There was a study showing how a a mouse's fear of a cat was mediated by brain chemicals secreted by the gut bacteria. Yeah, it's it's really quite phenomenal, isn't it? That gut bacteria can make hormones and neurotransmitters that directly influence your brain. Um, And that's another reason why what you eat is important, because that really does affect the flora that grows in your, your gut and therefore could have really big implications for your emotions and your health. Yeah, uh, there's some evidence that people with um, more diverse plant-based elements in their diet have a greater diversity of bacteria in their gut, and that's associated with things like better weight management, better heart health, and even better mental health. Uh, and it's quite easy to increase the amount of plant elements in your diet. You could you don't have to just sort of eat loads of different, dozens of different kinds of vegetables, but you could just eat a spoonful of mixed seeds each day. Or, or mixed salad instead of a one plain leaf salad. All these things are, are essentially prebiotics, meaning stuff that 
contains different chemicals that feeds different groups of bacteria. I think that was one of the things I found really interesting actually at the in at the microbiology conference last year is that you can actually do something about this potentially. You know, you can change your gut microbes, but you know, one one of the papers there was about the role that my, gut microbes might have on whether you're a good runner or not. And you know, there's one group at Harvard looking at whether you could create probiotics to you know make you a better runner through that route. I mean, I'm not sure that's the best route to being a, a better runner, but you know, it's interesting that you can do something about it. Well, that's something you've got a personal stake in as well. <laughs> quite, quite. I do know that we had a really interesting interview on this last year and what you can do to sort of um, maximize your microbiome. And after that, um, I remember most of us in the office started counting up if we could get to 30 different plant-based products a week. <laughs> it was uh, an interesting competition, obviously the back of our minds now. That's our sci-fi alert. As you know, the sci-fi alert sounds when we have a story in the news this week that has already been written about in science fiction. Rowan. This is a new finding about the moon of Mars, Phobos. Uh, Mars has two moons, Phobos and Deimos. And now simulations of the orbits of the moons suggests that Phobos used to be bigger than it is and that caused it to drag the other moon into its orbital path. And that caused the moon to be ripped apart by the gravity of Mars. Some bits of Phobos then formed a ring around Mars and that later coalesced into a moon again. So there's a kind of transition between being a, a ring of dust around Mars and being a moon. Uh, being a, there's a kind of cycle, meaning in 40 million years, Phobos could be smashed up again into another ring. Okay, so that's one for the diary then. Um, <laughs> what's the sci-fi link? Yeah, well, uh, a couple of things. But first, Gulliver's Travels. This is really cool. In Gulliver's Travels, astronomers discover two moons of Mars. And what's cool about that is that Swift wrote Gulliver's Travels in 1726 and the moons of Mars weren't even discovered until 1877. So really weirdly prophetic. But okay, that's not sci-fi. So I'm going to go with Kim Stanley Robinson, who describes Phobos being deorbited in his Mars trilogy, which I've mentioned before on the show. Also, Arthur C. Clarke had Phobos being blown up to terraform Mars in his novel The Sands of Mars. There is a lot of science fiction about Mars uh, that concerns terraforming it, and that's uh, giving it an Earth-like atmosphere and warming it up and giving it liquid water, which, incidentally, is what Elon Musk wants to do. Must be a terrible idea then, Rowan. (laughs) (laughs) Certainly provokes a lot of arguing both sides. (laughs) Now, as some people are venturing back outdoors, Penny, you're going to bring us all down by telling us about Lyme disease. Well, yes, sorry, Um, but it is a fascinating subject. So Chelsea White is our in-house expert on all things Lyme and tick related, and she has a really interesting feature in the latest issue of New Scientist looking at the rise of Lyme disease and the big mystery surrounding chronic Lyme. Yeah, what is chronic Lyme? So Lyme disease is an infection you can catch from ticks, So chronic Lyme is because it just doesn't go away in some people? Yes, something like that, but it's not really very clear. So we only actually discovered Lyme disease in the 70s, but since then we have begun to understand it. It's caused by three related strains of bacteria that live in certain ticks that mostly feed on birds, small rodents and deer. And if an infected tick latches onto you and it takes you a little while to notice, this bacteria can then move into your bloodstream and cause symptoms like pain, tingling, arthritis-like symptoms um, and a rash. How can you not notice you've got a tick? 
Yeah, so it's really easy to miss, especially if you've been bitten by a tick nymph. These are immature ticks and they can be only two millimetres wide. Um, and of course, if you have dark skin or you're bitten under your hairline, for example, um, you may just never notice. And this adds up to this whole um, sort of elusive issue with Lyme disease. So you may never notice that you've been bitten. In addition to that, the tests for it aren't very good and doctors aren't always very clear on the symptoms. So you may never get diagnosed. And what's more, there, there is that quite famous distinctive big bullseye like rash. That's a big telltale sign of, of Lyme disease. But that may not occur in 20 to 30 percent of cases. That's a that's a nightmare. So presumably, if you don't get diagnosed, you don't get treated. And that's another problem. Yeah, presumably. But again, the picture is is really tricky here um, because if you don't get diagnosed, it, it's hard to know if you ever even had it. Um, so what we do know is that in most cases that Lyme disease is diagnosed, antibiotics effectively treat the infection. However, about 10% of people don't get better on antibiotics. And this has led to the idea of chronic Lyme, a form of Lyme disease that just affects you ever onwards. So this is quite controversial, isn't it? What What's the evidence on chronic Lyme? Yeah, it's very controversial. Um, that's because with all the issues around testing and diagnosis, um, like I say, it, it's just really hard to know what actually causes these symptoms that are described as being chronic Lyme. What we do know is that there are people who experience these chronic uh, Lyme disease-like symptoms, but we don't know exactly what's triggering them. And some doctors have started calling it post-treatment Lyme disease syndrome instead. Do we know why people might be experiencing these symptoms in the long term, even after antibiotics? So there are quite a few hypotheses. Um, it might be that the infection triggers an autoimmune response in some people. Uh, so that's where the immune system then attacks their own body. Another is that some damaged bacteria survive the antibiotic treatment and go on to cause problems or, or that bacteria killed by antibiotics leave behind fragments of themselves that provoke inflammation and, and causes joint pain and stiffness. Alternatively, it may be that the illness um, somehow rewires how people perceive pain and fatigue. And, and that's something that may also happen in fibromyalgia, which is another chronic pain syndrome. There is a simpler and intriguing theory that uh, maybe actually a different kind of tick-borne bacterium causes this chronic syndrome. And so the antibiotics we use for Lyme disease aren't enough to actually kill it off. God, so it just gets worse. Is that likely? Are, are ticks just riddled with bacteria then? They do seem to be pretty good vectors of disease. Um, in fact, a new tick-borne illness called a Longshan virus was identified in Mo Mongolia only last year. And have you heard of there's a meat allergy that one type of tick can occasionally cause in people? No, it, but it sounds disgusting. So I want to know all about it. Yeah, so it, it, to be clear, it is very rare, or it does seem to be anyway. But there is evidence that one type of tick can sometimes push people to start making an antibody to a type of sugar that's found in red meat. And, and it's really serious. Um, it can cause people to suffer bad anaphylactic shocks whenever they then go on to eat red meat. Gross. Is there anything we can do to protect ourselves? Yeah, so with cases of Lyme disease increasing in the US and the UK, probably linked to climate change, although it also doesn't help that we've killed off most of the animals that used to keep rodents and deer in check, um, it is, as a result, a good idea to try to avoid getting bitten by a tick in the first place. 
I, I would say that for those of us not living in the eastern US, some of these measures sound quite extreme. So I'd recommend looking up the Lyme disease risk for your area, wherever you live, before you decide um, whether you're going to follow this advice or not. But what the US Centers for Disease Control and Prevention recommend is that in areas where Lyme is common and you're spending time outdoors, particularly grassy or woody areas, you should wear insect repellent. You should check yourself for ticks every day, uh, shower soon after you come in from being outdoors and call your doctor if you get a fever or notice a bullseye rash. And obviously in our current situation, a fever or aches and pains could well be symptoms of coronavirus, not necessarily Lyme disease. That's all for this week. Thanks to our guest, Adam Vaughan, and thanks to you for listening. Do share your love for our show with your friends and family. Uh, you can even vote for New Scientists Weekly in the British Podcast Awards at britishpodcastawards.com slash vote. And remember, you can read about all these stories and much more at newscientist.com. And there's 20% off a subscription to New Scientist if you use the code POD20 at checkout. You can get in touch with us on Twitter at newscientistpod or email us at podcast at newscientist.com. New episodes go live each Friday. Do subscribe to our show at the usual place you get your podcasts. Until next time, take care. Goodbye. Bye. This is a Right Angles production. You can find out more by visiting rightangles.global. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.